0: Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about current? You're going to like this, guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking.
1: Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y,
1: and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Member FDIC And Cross River Bank Member FDIC This is OK Computer This is kind of like an emergency OK Computer pod
0: It usually drops on Wednesday mornings This one is going to drop on Tuesday morning, that's when you're listening to this right now, Packy McCormick, my co-host, and Meltem Demers, my other co-host from CoinShares, Packy from Not Boring. Packy and I just had a great conversation with Sheldon Day of the Cleveland Browns and his partner, Amir Carlisle, about a new DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization that they started called The Player's Company, and it's really focused on financial literacy. We're going to get into that with them, but first... All right, Melton, you just got off a plane from London here. This is what you're faced with. What's going on? And again, not shedding any light on this, because when I think about the two of you guys, when I really wanted to talk about what's going on in crypto right now, you guys are first and foremost educators. And I mean this sincerely. I've learned almost everything that I know from the two of you guys about the crypto landscape. But for a lot of people who are not spending the time reading your blog post and following you on Twitter and getting your memes, that sort of stuff, this is a really difficult time. And so i just love to hear quick thoughts about what you think is going on here and how people should think about this downward volatility of late?
2: Look, I think there are a number of things going on here, but if we distill, maybe I'll just make three main points. Point number one, I think, is there's this concept of Eternal September. If anyone remembers Usenet from back in the day, it was an online community and people didn't have the internet at home. So every September, when kids would go to college for the first time, you get a bunch of new users who came in. And then Usenet got added to the front page of AOL and it started something called Eternal September. But basically, the idea was is every September, all these new people would join this community and they didn't know the social norms of this community. So for a couple of months after all these new kids joined, there'd be some turbulence, like the forums would get kind of weird and messy because they didn't know the rules. And they would slowly get indoctrinated into the culture, and then things would normalize, and then next September would come. But when Usenet got added to the front page of AOL, suddenly there were millions of new people joining, and the culture changed permanently. And I think over the last 18 months, crypto has been through this. I've been in this industry for the last seven years. When I started, it was only Bitcoin. It was just us Bitcoiners, and everyone thought we were crazy. Then Ethereum launched, more people joined. And over the last 18 months, really, since the start of the pandemic, since investing has really become entertainment and something that's entered the cultural zeitgeist, the crypto community has really changed permanently, particularly with the advent of NFTs, which has brought a whole new user base in, including celebrities and athletes and art people, people we haven't seen in this community before. And so I think the culture of crypto and the narrative around crypto is so fundamentally different. So I think one is really like cultural and social phenomenon is the community around crypto is no longer just diehards and crazy people who are really dedicated to the ideology of crypto. And it's so interesting. You know, I talk to people who are new to crypto. I talk about Bitcoin and the scaling wars and the block size wars, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. So the culture permanently shifted. And I think as a result, what we're seeing, the reaction to this volatility, there's a lot of panic. A lot of people are new to this. They haven't seen this before. So I think that's one. Two is, as part of that, as cryptos become increasingly financialized, it's increasingly easier for people to access crypto through other venues where they're trading stocks and bonds and whatever else they may have in their portfolio, the rise of alternative investing platforms. Crypto is just more correlated to macro. That's a fact. And I think right now, the uncertainty we're seeing, FOMC meeting tomorrow, right? Big day. Daddy J-Pow is going to come out and read the tea leaves for us. So I think a lot of people are anxious and the general skittishness we see in macro markets, the S&P. Last week was down, NASDAQ down almost 8% on the week. Like, that's pretty dramatic for normal equities. We're seeing that volatility and that anxiety carrying over into crypto because more and more people own portfolios in both assets. There are more funds in both. And then the third piece is things in crypto have gotten really crazy. We sort of go through these cycles. There's more dry powder in the crypto space than ever before. Multiple hundred million plus billion dollar, multi-billion dollar funds being raised, more capital chasing, fewer opportunities. And as a result, I think what we saw is this detachment from any sort of objective reality Last month, I was getting pitch decks for people raising at 100000000 million pre-money valuation for something that wasn't even launched. Six months ago, no one would have invested in that. Now, it's oversubscribed and they're pushing people out. So I think those three factors taken together, it's like a maelstrom, just an absolute storm of dry powder capital everywhere, people trying to figure out where to put it. General anxiety about macro and what's gonna happen with rate heights and the Fed, you know, signaling very hawkish on policy. And then the fact that you have this culture with a ton of retail, a ton of people new to finance, new to crypto, new to all of this, who are sort of very emotional. There's a ton of charlatans, ton of fake financial influencers out there giving people really bad advice. We see a ton of these meme coins launching some of our meme stocks, which has resulted in people, I think, investing in things completely detached from any reality as we saw. No offense to Packy, but Constitution DAO and the People Token is a great example of that. The DAO didn't buy the Constitution, but the token ran up 1,200%. What's going on there? We love the memes. How do memes do in times of volatility? The first thing people sell. So that's sort of my read. And again, we've seen this before. Like History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So we saw this in 2014. We saw this in 2018. And I think this year certainly has some rough times ahead. There are a few different flavors here that we haven't seen before. But by and large, I think the pattern is sort of the same.
3: There's really not much that I can add to that. I think that's really well done. I was going to ask how much we're being paid for this because like I really, really need the money. Uh, <laughs> one of the fascinating things to me about this is obviously, and i seeing a lot of the same panic here, but unlike previous crashes in both the equities market and in crypto, this feels very predicted and predictable and the causes were predicted and even the levels are predicted and like I'm kind of averaging down on things, but random people behind frog avatars are saying that you maybe go to 1700, maybe below. They're probably going to be right. And so that to me has been this very interesting thing about all of this is how predictable it's been. So there's a little bit of panic and then I see another side of people and these are probably the people that Melton was referring to who have been here for a little while who are just like, yeah, things are down. It's fine. We knew this was going to happen. Cycles happen. I'm going to buy a little bit more. So it seems less scary than maybe I would have imagined just because of that predictability.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it has to do with what Meltem just said. It's become really financialized, and that means it's become a macro asset. People are using charts a lot more. They're setting stops in the futures markets at those technical levels. This is stuff that I've lived with in more traditional financial markets over the last 25 years since I've been in it. And technology has obviously been the reason. And then when you get retail involved, and then you get manias involved, So I want to ask you guys about this because we had Alexis Ohanian last week on the podcast and Rick Heitzman and I chatted with him and we were talking about NFTs a little bit. And Packy and I have had this conversation a couple of times over the last few weeks is that is there a pocket of illiquidity in NFTs? A lot of people moved- Their profits that they might have had in ETH or Bitcoin into, let's say, very illiquid NFTs that were trading at values that were being assigned to, whether it be a PFP or something like that, because you like the community and you identified with the project and this and that, whatever. And then all of a sudden are people selling what they can. You see this in the stock market all the time where they're selling the most illiquid things because the most expensive illiquid things are hard to sell. Is that something that's going on right now? And might we see a reckoning in some of these NFT values?
2: I think blue-chip NFTs are going to continue to hold value. There's a great company called Upshot. If people are curious, it's like the premier NFT valuation platform. Full disclosure, I'm an investor, huge fan of it. But I think for blue-chip NFTs, they'll continue to have value. Dan, I think the other thing we have to remember... One Ether is still one Ether. One Bitcoin is still one Bitcoin. So for a lot of people, it's also your reference price. Do you reference back to dollars or do you reference back to ETH? So your PFP, it may have the same value in ETH terms. It's just that ETH is worth far less. And the other thing I'd say about NFTs and illiquid assets generally across the board is there are now a bunch of new platforms emerging that allow you to use your NFT, particularly some of these blue chip NFTs, as collateral to obtain loans in both stable coins or crypto. So I think for a lot of people, these assets aren't necessarily illiquid because they have real financial utility and they can be utilized to obtain cash liquidity. Same thing with crypto, right? I use a platform called Liquidy, also an investor in it, where you can take your ETH and borrow against your ETH. You lock it up in an escrow contract and the origination fee is 50 basis points for that. So I think, again, there's just all of these financial platforms emerging that allow you to very quickly, the click of one or two buttons, With a non-custodial wallet that only you have the keys to, to utilize these assets collateral for other financial purposes. So I think there's less downward pressure than you might expect. And as Packy alluded to, you know, I think a lot of people saw that this was a self-fulfilling prophecy, sort of self-fulfilling narrative. So hopefully people positioned accordingly.
3: The NFT portion of my wallet is where I'm going to make myself feel good. They've held up actually surprisingly well relative to prices, obviously, if you're looking at USD. To Melson's point, they haven't held up as well because everything's down, but a bunch of them are actually up in ETH terms. And so I think that's fine. I think there's probably. A little bit of what you're talking about, Dan, maybe with the liquidity piece, but there's also just this idea of if you're going to sell something, you probably have more attachment and particularly for people who are panic selling now and have come in recently, you probably have more attachment to your NFTs and want to hold on to those and the community that you're a part of and all of that than to these fungible things that you can get back the exact same thing later on. It's actually, I hadn't thought about this before, but in a sell-off, that idea of fungibility and non-fungibility really comes into play where if you sell your your NFT, there's no guarantee that you get it back. If you sell a Bitcoin, you can always buy back a Bitcoin. So I wonder if that's maybe one of the reasons people are holding on.
0: Let's talk about some of the volatility though that we've seen just in the last year. If you look year over year, Bitcoin is basically flat. If I said to you guys year over year, the NASDAQ was flat, just given what we know about the stock market and everything that's going on, and that could happen in the not so distant future. What are your thoughts about the time in which it takes for these troughs to happen? And you think about what happened from the peak in 2017, there was clearly a frenzy and then there was this long period. And this is the thing, I didn't know Packy back then, but I knew Meltem and you and I would check in and I'd see you every once in a while. You just head down building and never stopped. And I think that's one of the things for me who tends to be somewhat skeptical as it relates to markets and manias and stuff. The smartest people I knew in finance and in tech were focused on the worst bear market in a risk asset that maybe people shouldn't have been focused on. You had to believe in something bigger than just some financialization of a risk asset.
2: But Dan, hold on. I want to hear, sort of differentiate, There is a difference in quality here. And I think one of the things people will realize in this cycle as they do every cycle, there's a ton of stuff that's just going to fade away and just go straight to zero, (laughs) right? Maybe not straight, like it'll slowly taper off. And there will be a lot of teams who give up or pivot and a lot of people who leave roles at projects that were maybe hot a few months ago. But I think again, what happens, I go back to Carlotta Perez and her seminal research book, Technological Revolutions and Financial Bubbles. And basically the premise is we kind of went through this period in all markets where real production value got decoupled from paper value, where paper value skyrocketed, like Peloton at 160. It's an insane premise. It's a freaking bike with an iPad attached to it, right? And so I think, again, what we're seeing now is people looking at the real value and trying to figure out, okay, where are there opportunities to acquire assets that have long-term value, long-term potential? And I do think we see this bifurcation between assets that people want to hold long-term that they have conviction in, teams that they have conviction in. I'm an early stage investor, right? So I invest in people. That's what I do. I call it vibe capitalism, but really what it is, is figuring out who are the people who are really going to be there and continue to build no matter what happens. And then there's a ton of opportunistic stuff that's sort of going to fade away. And those people, like in 2017, 2018, the people that left became cannabis people, Really funny, all the crypto influencers who were working on trash projects became cannabis influencers, then they became SPAC people, then they came back to crypto. Who knows what they'll do (laughs) this cycle? But there is sort of the cyclicality. But there is a lot of really amazing stuff that's happening. I can't envision my life without some of the products and protocols I'm using every day. Certainly, I think a lot of people right now are looking at opportunities to accumulate. We just did our weekly fund flows report, comes out every week. Last week at the start of this pretty monumental red downward candle, we saw people adding. There were net inflows. So that to me is a signal that a lot of investors who may have been sitting on the sidelines looking at Bitcoin, looking at ETH, maybe did not love it at 65 They're loving it at 35. So I think, again, it's an opportunity for people who have conviction, who have a little bit of a chutzpah and are willing to take the jump. Can we go lower? Yes. But I think there's $5 trillion of dry powder on the sidelines, capital markets. What are you going to buy? Is Microsoft going to be a $10 trillion company? There's only so many opportunities to deploy into things that have growth potential. And so it'll be interesting to see where that capital goes. I don't think it's going to sit on the sidelines indefinitely because inflation... The CPI print's close to 8%. So what are you going to do with your capital? You're not going to sit on the sidelines forever. So I think this melt-up scenario over the coming months is not a very unrealistic scenario in my view, but maybe I'm too optimistic.
3: I'm not going to pessimist you here because I'm equally optimistic. This is obviously not investment advice, but I think one of the just psychological things that's interesting too, is looking at everybody like Meltem and the people who kept their heads down and built and stayed in, in 2017, 2018 and beyond, everybody did really well. And people who came out of that bear market and into this bull market in a really great position. And I think people see that. And personally, you know, someone who played a tiny bit in the last one and went to cannabis, I'm kidding. I did not get to cannabis. I, messed around but wasn't serious and is back into at this time, I'm looking at this as an opportunity to one, prove my mettle, two, build up a bigger position. I think it's a really interesting aspect, at least for me, I'm more interested in Ether. One of the really interesting things for me is fuck, I can finally build up a meaningful position in something that I want to spend and play with that before was like this really expensive thing to accumulate and spend and play with. I think that's a psychological factor here that's going to be interesting to watch is that I think people are going to come back in more quickly because they're going to see the opportunity uh, to kind of be like the, the people in the last bear market.
0: So, Packy, you're in the process of launching a second fund. Elton, you just told us that you're obviously an early-stage investor. I know you're pretty active here. I have to assume that this is actually a really good time to deploy capital. If you're thinking about the lessons of this last period, how are you thinking about it? Because a lot's changed in just the last few weeks, Packy. since you basically went out with your new fund.
3: I personally have not seen a ton of it trickle down. I think it's really been the past week that there's been real pain, but I haven't seen it trickle into prices yet. I think to Melton's point before, the good projects are going to survive, and I bet they'll probably continue to attract capital at high valuations. There is an interesting game theory here where if one fund box on price or tries to come in lower, somebody else is just going to try to come in and win that deal at a higher price. I don't think people are petrified right now. Seeing that actually both across the Web3 investments and the traditional investments.
0: Hey, so Melton. You made a really interesting point about the stock market, the correlations and that sort of thing. And I'm the fast money guy, right? I'm on CNBC and I'm talking about stocks. You know what I was doing this morning? So again, this is Monday. And this morning you saw most uh, cryptos down, what, 5 to 10% across the board. And then you were also seeing, this is the first day we saw Microsoft, one of the largest equities on the planet, its market cap is bigger than the entire crypto's ecosystem, was down 6%. NASDAQ was down 4%. You know what I was buying this morning? I bought some ETH and I bought Solana because I actually, to your point, I'd rather buy those than I would a little more of some mega cap equity or something. And I think there's going to be so much more innovation around those ecosystems than there will be among these minted $2 trillion market cap companies. I'm just curious, Melton, because you started out in more traditional financial markets. What do you think about that mentality?
2: I think that mentality is spot on and just connecting it back to what we're seeing on the venture side used to be mostly crypto funds that were on early stage cap tables or angels. Now I see traditional venture funds on cap tables. Hyger Global for the first time is allocating to tokens directly, right? They were doing crypto deals, but mostly growth stage equities like Coinbase Series D, like later stage, closer to IPO. But what I'm seeing now is every investor across the spectrum is looking at outperformance in crypto. We also have more unicorn companies than ever. I read the craziest statistic. Every day in the United States of America, 1.5 new unicorns are minted. So we're minting unicorns at a pace of about 500 per year. Tech IPOs have really not done that spectacularly. We look at the IPOs over the last 18 months, come out of the gate hot, and then like a a rock just drops straight down. So I think, again, as investors look at some of these factors around exit potential liquidity, utility, crypto is one of these things. Or if we look at how crypto has done throughout these different cycles and just Again, the fact that crypto is a financial asset, it's mutable, it's fungible, it's easy to utilize in a wide variety of applications, whether those are decentralized finance or more centralized applications, an asset like crypto just inherently gives an investor much more optionality in terms of exit and the market for it's just a lot more liquid right now because the cohort of investors, it's everyone from macro funds to growth equity, to venture, to retail investors. And so there's just a much bigger cohort of potential buyers, whereas for things like late-stage growth equity for public company IPOs, the audience is smaller. And so I think what we are seeing is there is sort of a preference for crypto amongst investors. And I think that's only going to continue to grow. Like just this morning, Lloyd Blankfein, former chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs, came out and said, hey, I thought about it. I've changed my view. This crypto thing, I think, really has legs, has potential. So for someone who's been in that role, come out and say that, I think is pretty monumental. And he joins a very loud chorus of other voices like Bill Miller and many others who are really revered in traditional markets who are now looking at crypto and saying, okay, this is one of the next big things. So in my view, there's a lot of capital that isn't just crypto capital that's looking to get into the space. And again, opportunities like these don't come along very often. If you had the balls to do it, March 2020 was the best time imaginable as a crypto investor. And people who took opportunities in March 2020, they absolutely killed it. So will we see more pain? Yes. But I think fortune favors the bold. Some people are going to come out of this market. They're going to be bold and aggressive and they're going to make career changing calls.
0: (laughs) You just did your good show hunting thing. That was the crypto.com ad. Fortune favors the brave, and he just looks out at Mars. There were so many things going on with that. I couldn't figure it out. That ad, you remember? He got destroyed.
2: I haven't seen that ad. The Matt Damon ad. What? Look, Matt Damon doesn't care. He got paid You guys not
0: watch TV? No. Who
2: watches TV? It's
0: him walking in like a tight black shirt, and he's looking at all this stuff, and he's t- he never says crypto once. And he says, it's been said for years, fortune favors the brave. And then it just, he's looking out at some thing, like he's in a spaceship and he's looking at Mars and then it just says crypto.com.
2: Okay. Matt Damon doesn't care. He got paid what? A hundred million dollars. Like he's good.
0: Yeah. Good chill hunting.
2: I don't know about all of that. <laughs>
0: So, Packy, there was two posts last year that I read on Not Boring. It was on the internet, it was the deep dive on Ethereum, and I think that was in May, and then that was very near the lows at the time, and then Solana Summer in August. Just give our listener a little bit of a background. You just laid it out. It wasn't about that coin. You're buying into a thought process, a mentality, an ecosystem. The future of decentralized building, is that how you think about it? That's great when things are going up, 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 but when they're going down, does it change your thought process? You try to get more in tune with the bear case.
3: Yes and no. To me, the bull case on Solana and Ethereum the whole time was, are developers developing on these chains or not? The past week? Solana has gotten absolutely murdered. I've also talked to a bunch of early stage founders who are building very cool shit on top of Solana. So as long as that continues to happen, I still feel pretty good. And, and I'm seeing it both on Ethereum, Solana, Nier. A bunch of different chains still have a ton of developer activity happening on top of them. If that slows down and it becomes purely about price speculation, then I get really, really worried. Until that slows down, I think the the bull case over whatever time horizon i'm looking at over the next decade remains strongly intact
0: so time horizon is really important this is really helpful you talk about there's a lot of hucksters out there and there's a lot of people shilling and you guys are always sober you're deliberate and i think that's really helpful and you guys write a lot and you're on tv and you're willing to lay out your track record a little bit So I'm just curious, what are some things that people listening to this who are kind of new to this space, what should they be thinking about? How should they be thinking about time horizon and dollar cost averaging? Is there anything that people should be looking for to kind of show that there's some sort of capitulation?
2: My viewpoint has always been first and foremost, what's so cool about crypto is it's accessible to anyone. Your only limitation to getting into crypto is your willingness to learn. And it's really easy today. You can buy a little bit of ETH, a little bit of Solana on a centralized platform like Gemini or Coinbase or FTI. Like choose your favorite here, crypto.com, whatever. I don't have loyalty to any one particular one. Be careful of fees, though. You know, make sure you're watching those fees. You can take that. You can migrate it to a non-custodial browser compatible wallet like a MetaMask. And you can actually start playing around with some of this stuff. And it doesn't have to be. I think people have this view, like, oh, I'm getting into crypto. I have to put in like $5,000. No, you don't, actually. With Solana, there's a great browser wallet called Phantom. You can put in one soul, which is $90, and you can take it and use it on something like Apricot Finance or Orca, where you can try staking it. It doesn't take a lot of capital to start to learn how these things work. There's a ton of great resources. I'm a big fan of Bankless, which is a newsletter published by some people in the Ether ecosystem, The Defiant, which is Camila Russo's newsletter, where they're covering some of these new projects that people can engage with crypto twitter is a great resource but again it's really the only limit is your willingness your propensity to learn i think again what i always encourage people to do is like start out by really learning and trying to understand what these things are how they work before you try to deploy investment capital right capital that you want to appreciate into things because you want to know what you're investing in you want to get sort of a general sense for what it does how it works why it works the way it does and then when you have some conviction when you feel more comfortable with how these things work not just at a technical level but from a markets perspective then i think you can start to deploy there are a ton of great tools now that you can utilize I really recommend Zapper Finance. It's Zapper.fi. It's like a great front end to the DeFi space. It allows you to see all of your different assets across different centralized, decentralized wallets, including your NFTs. There's a ton of stuff like that emerging. But again, my only recommendation is always start by learning first There's a lot of time to invest. There will always be time for you to find new things, invest in new things. But take some time to just learn what these things are and at a conceptual level how they work. Because A, it's going to make you smarter. B, it's going to make you more comfortable. And C, if you get a tremendous amount of anxiety, then maybe this asset class isn't a great one for you to manage yourself. Maybe buy a publicly listed product. Buy one of these blockchain ETFs that tracks publicly listed equities that are exposed to crypto's volatility. Maybe don't manage your own crypto portfolio. Like People have very different ways of reacting to stressors. And I've definitely interacted with some people who get a lot of anxiety about this stuff. And I'm like, hey, maybe this isn't the right approach for you. I think it's really very personal. But at the end of the day, I think starting at the conceptual level, again, so much free content, so many amazing free resources like Packy's publishing a ton of stuff. There are hundreds of podcasts out there that I think are really high quality publications, newsletters. So again, I don't think there's anything stopping people from getting in. It's just people are really lazy and people want the big red staples easy button, but it's like make money in crypto. And that works in a bull market, but it doesn't work always and so i think you need to have conviction and an ideological basis for why you're making these investments aside from hey some egg on twitter named hot crypto 69 told me to buy this random token i don't know anything about it other than he said i was going to make money
0: people think Packy mccormick is his pseudonymous account but it's really hot crypto 69 don't talk to me on the air again, I'm just going to agree with
3: Melton here though. If you want to play around and explore price of admission just got 50% off. So if you're just coming into play and experiment with new things and learn, it's cheaper now to do it than it was a week ago.
0: Melton, what you just said, I've been telling people this for years and I probably heard it from you like five years ago, open up that account in Coinbase buy a little bit. It doesn't have to be a lot of bit. It has to be like a number that maybe you don't care about, but the number that forces you to start reading about it, learning about it, and following people. And I just think that if you're an investor and you're interested in appreciation and you're interested in finding that next thing, I just don't know how you could ignore this asset class. And the tools are all out there for you to do it. So listen, I really appreciate you guys coming in and dropping this knowledge. I know that there's a lot of anxiety in the space right now because people are generally not, when they look at the major indices as it relates to the stock market, they're not used to seeing the sort of swings that you see as you would in a Bitcoin or Ethereum. But ultimately, we will see volatility dampened as financial products and DeFi and everything just takes a lot of that out of it. And that's probably going to be the value, a large part of the value that's created over the next few years, I suspect.
2: Another good strategy is just be dead on the inside. (laughs) After three bull bear cycles, I'm just like dead on the inside. I'm joking. But I do think you need a fair dose of nihilism. The world is a crazy place. I think the world has actually gotten more volatile. And I think in context, the biggest argument I used to get from investors against investing in Bitcoin was its volatility. Now that macro markets are so volatile, I think investors looking at crypto are just less phased by its volatility because everything's crazy. The world's just getting increasingly interconnected. Everything's being digitized. Everything's tradable 24-7, 365 liquidity is converging so I think over time that narrative is only going to get more powerful and again what are you going to put your portfolio into are you just going to buy Microsoft and Google? That doesn't really work long term. You're not going to get outperformance doing the consensus thing. Is crypto a consensus trade? Maybe at this point, but I think we still have a long way to go. There's a ton of capital that's not yet in the crypto space. And I just think if we look at growth opportunity over the next decade, right, this is a multi-decade trend it will materialize overnight. There will be volatility in that cycle, but the highs are higher and the lows are also higher.
3: And don't invest what you can't lose. And it's a lot easier to sleep at night. And I've started using the waking up meditation app recently on someone's who's been in crypto for a long time's recommendation the other day. And it's great. So meditate a little more.
0: I'm certainly going to meditate after podcasting all day with you guys. Listen, it was great. Meltem Demers of Corn Shares and Packy McCormick of Not Boring. Thanks for joining us to kind of ease the nerves a little bit as it relates to what's going on in crypto right now. All right, when we come back, Packy and I are going to sit down with Sheldon Day of the Cleveland Browns and his partner in the Players Company Dow, Amir Carlisle.
1: Cross Riverbank member FDIC. Dan, you're about 10 months into the row Body Program. You look great. It looks to be maintenance now. Congratulations. Give us an update.
0: Yeah, well, I feel great too. So when I think about what I set out to do, I was looking to take about 15% of my body weight off through the row Body Program, and I've done that now. So now it is about maintenance. It is about nutrition. It is about exercise. It's about better sleep, and really better habits here. So I can do this all in the app on the Rode Body program here, and I'm really looking forward to actually taking these new behaviors into 2024 because I am feeling a lot better.
1: Well, it's clearly working, Dan, and congratulations. And, folks, if you're interested in learning more, go to Road.co/ok. You'll pay just $99 for the first month and $145 per month thereafter. If prescribed, medication cost is separate. That's row.co slash OKAY.
0: We're back here. I'm with my co-host, Packy McCormick, and we also are joined by two gentlemen, which have a great story to tell, and the endeavor that they're involved in is something that I think is really important to us here at Risk Media. I want to introduce Sheldon Day and Amir Carlisle. They are the co-founders of The Players Company, which is a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. Packy is going to drop some knowledge on DAOs for us in a couple of minutes. But I just wanted to say welcome, gentlemen, to OK Computer.
4: Appreciate you having us on. Thank you so much. Super excited.
0: This podcast is going to cover three things that are near and dear to our hearts. First and foremost is going to be football. So we got to talk about this weekend that we just had here. The other one is obviously going to be crypto. And then lastly, financial literacy. And that's what we're really here to talk about. Packy was kind of nerding out on Twitter spaces about Web3 last night when two of the best football games of maybe the season were going on here. Talk to us a little bit about this weekend, guys, because these divisional playoff games were just out of control.
5: I was actually saying the other day that this is probably the best weekend of football we had in a long time. Just how close the games were, how exciting they were. A Tundra game with the 49ers in Green Bay. Shout out to the 49ers. You know, I used to play for them. So got a lot of friends over there. Them going up to Green Bay, winning in a big game that was a must-need, and just to see Aaron Rodgers at home and lose. Personally, every time I play Aaron, I lose, so being him got an unknown beef that he doesn't know. And then just to see Matt Stafford and OBJ just excel in the playoffs, good thing to see on the NFC side and the AFC, the Bengals. Me playing for the Browns right now, honestly don't like them, but just got to root for those guys. Nobody thought that they could do what they're doing right now, just to see them go to Tennessee and win, and Go to the AFC Championship, and they haven't done that for 20-plus years. That's exciting. And then, of course, you got Patrick Mahomes. He just does whatever he wants. Just to see him still just continue to climb and get better and better, it's going to be exciting to see how his career turns out.
0: Amir, you played at the University of Notre Dame with Sheldon here. So you're a little removed from the game here. What was your take on the weekend's games? I'd say, shoot,
4: it was probably the greatest playoff football weekend I've ever seen. Every game seemed like it was going down to the wire, game-winning field goal. I just like to see good games. I support my friends who are out there, but just really want to see a great game that goes down to the wire and they delivered. It was crazy. I mean, people on Twitter saying that the games are rigged. I'm like, shoot, if this is rigged, whoever wrote the script to these games, one of the greatest script writers you'll ever see. It was extremely exciting to sit there, enjoy and watch.
3: Yeah, we had to flush the Eagles out of the playoffs, I think, for this to happen. That game was not a script written game or a fun game to watch by any stretch of the imagination. So a lot of fun getting to watch some real football yesterday.
0: Yeah, Packy, flush was the right term to use with your Eagles here. All right, Sheldon, real quickly, who wins the games this weekend? Who's in the Super Bowl in a few weeks? So I'll go from two sides. To make the most money, you got to have the Rams against
5: the Chiefs. I think those tickets sell out in 10 seconds. Me personally, I want the underdogs to win. I want the 49ers to come out and win. And, of course, I want the Bengals because nobody expects them to do anything. So if Joe Burrow can go out and do that in his second year, it'd be phenomenal for him and the way Cincinnati is trying to go with the organization. Amir, who do you got?
0: I got Rams
4: Chiefs. I do love the underdog story, but I think the Rams Chiefs, you just have a ton of star power on both sides. The Odell Beckham perseverance story being with the Browns. Unfortunately, sorry, Shell. He left you guys. But him coming back on top, coming to a Super Bowl, I think that the storyline is just so much star power being in LA, the home team. So I'm rooting for that matchup, though. I wouldn't be mad either way. Like Shell said, we got a lot of friends on the 49ers, so I'm pulling for them.
0: Any way you look at it, there will not be a team with a player from Packy's alma mater of of Duke. That's just like very clear. I just just want to get that out of the way here.
3: I have no comeback. The Eagles got blown out. Duke football is a hell of a lot better than it was when I was there. I'll give them that.
0: All right, listen, let's get to it here because a couple weeks ago, I saw Packy retweet a post from Sheldon. It was called Hello World, Welcome to the Players Company, DAO. And it was really a moving blog post. And you did it on Mirror. So you did it on a decentralized blogging organization. We're going to talk about that because I got to hear how you guys came into this Web3 world. And Packy's going to go deep on that. But your story, Sheldon and mirror. I'm sorry because I'm not focused on your backstory here. But reading his post, it's really moving. And it seems something that's so sincere to you. And I know you're super busy. You're in the middle of an NFL career, but you You've taken some time. You partner with Amir on something about financial literacy, and it really has to do with your background. And this one line in the second paragraph, how you started, was really, I think, kind of moving. And I'd love to hear more about your background and how it led to you where you are right now. But it says, I was born and raised on the far east side of Indianapolis. Words that were often used to describe my community were ghetto, the hood, poverty. But it was home to me. Talk to me a little bit about your background and how you got here and how financial literacy became really important to you.
5: Yeah, for sure. So I'm from the east side of Indianapolis, not the best area. We don't have the best resources and things like that, but we didn't know that growing up. And as a kid, of course, your parents, they try to provide as much as they can, things like that. I'm the youngest of nine children. So it's a dynamic to where you just don't know what you don't know. And just to see me leaving the bubble that I grew up in and go to the University of Notre Dame and just see what more to the world it was. I'm going to California to play games, Texas, all these places to play the sport that I love they gave me an opportunity to see the world, but didn't stop there. I got a chance to be drafted to the NFL. And then my life switched in a matter of seconds. I went from having $200 into my bank account to having a comma or comma with almost another comma. And it just changed my mindset. It's like, how do I go from having $200 and worried about going to buy Taco Bell and not being able to pay my rent because I'm waiting on my stipend from the school. So it's just the change of mindset just switched so quick. And we didn't grow up with the fancy clothes. I went to school where. People were getting our iPods and stuff robbed out of your lockers and stuff like that. So now I'm going to the store and I'm saying, hey, I can get this and I can get this. And it's not a matter of price. It's a matter of how bad do I want it. So just the switch of mindsets from where I came and where I am now is just a complete flip of the script. So just to get to the point where I am now and actually have some money and be able to pour back into my community so they can know, hey, you can make it out of your situation is kind of where my passion started.
0: Growing up in a program like Notre Dame, you guys are well cared for as it relates to the resources that you need to compete and be student athletes and that sort of thing. Were these things that you guys were thinking about back then, or were you just like any other 21-year-old kid in the middle of everything, just trying to figure it all out and money is easy come, easy go?
4: So for me, my first experience with money was when I was six years old. I was at my friend's house, and I remember this like it was yesterday. He had a piggy bank, $1 bills, coins. He had a $100 bill in there. And I told myself one day I want to be a hundred dollar heir. I just want a hundred dollars in my bank account one day. Really from then, that was when I started working. My dad had a training facility. At the end of the day, I would spray down the equipment. I would get a dollar a day and I saved up. I saved up like four or $500 over a few years span. And really that was my first experience. I was like, you can earn money and this money can then go purchase something. And so from there, it was really about how could I begin to make more money? didn't really understand the concept of wealth or investing. The mentality that was really passed down in my family was save every dollar you get, kind of this take dollars and put it under the mattress and just hold on to everything that you could get. And I really took that with me basically throughout my whole life until Sheldon and I really started to dive into financial literacy, investing, what it really means to build wealth. But throughout college, it was I tried to save as much stipend checks as I got. I tried to save all of my per diem checks. It was really this mentality about save, 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 which is the first step to building wealth. But we really didn't have this concept of what wealth really was. It was just keep the dollars so I can make more money and I could buy the things that I want. So I didn't really have this comprehensive understanding of really what money was. It was just work, save as much as I can because I know I'll be able to buy something that I want down the line.
3: I came across the blog post, Sheldon and I have been DMing on Twitter, talking about Web3 a little bit, wondering kind of just how you came to Web3 as the toolkit to use to help solve this problem and spread financial literacy and what that exploration was like for you to get here.
4: Appreciate you, Packy. You were actually a primary motivator and influence in terms of this journey into Web3. But it really started with Sheldon and I, we've been jamming on this and Richard Sherman, our third co-founder for the last three years. And it really started with us coming together to say, hey, we need to provide a better solution to help professional athletes translate dollar in their bank account to lasting, meaningful wealth. Because really what we saw was the different systems around the athlete was more so check the box. My rookie year, I came in, it was a financial literacy workshop. Guy from Morgan's Stanley came in, did an hour-long presentation after practice. Everybody was asleep. And so we said, how could we really engage with this community of players and really provide the value that they can actually take this knowledge and use it to build wealth. And so from there, we went and we pitched something to the NFL Players Association. We had partnered with Wellfront. It was this cool little budgeting app leveraging their path technology. Ultimately, the Players Association said they had a sponsorship that they had to honor, and so they couldn't move forward with it. But from there, it was like, let's build a system that really is truly representative of us. Where true success for the players' company is when it's really just this community of athletes at the forefront, and me, Sheldon, Richard begin to take a back seat and really let the community dictate what's in its best interest. And so that was really always at the core of what we were trying to do is like, how could we build this community that's aligned both socially and economically? But we really didn't know how we were gonna actually execute on that. And then fast forward to last year, we were at Launch House. And it was their creator economy cohort. And so that was really the first introduction to what Web3 was and really this concept of DAOs and true decentralization. And so from there, got introduced to your blog, Not Boring. And I started really just diving into your articles from The Great Online Game to The Pareto Frontier. It was just like, dang, this is exactly what we've been thinking about for the last two years. From a financial literacy standpoint, it's really been about, okay, You've had this antiquated viewpoint of what financial literacy is. Like you said, it's the financialization of finance where you can begin to maximize both fun and utility. And so that was really how we started to dive down this web through rabbit hole where we could build out this learn to earn model that really incentivized people to invest in their personal growth, have fun, collaborate, and build community around it while doing so.
0: So before we get into the Web3 aspects of the players' company, Sheldon, I got to ask you, did you feel in the years that you've been in the league now, and I'm not trying to get you to criticize any partnerships with the players' association or anything like that, do you feel that they're generally underserved, that they're not treated in a manner which is commensurate with the capital that they have to invest? Curious to get your sense for it. So the way the system is now, usually financial
5: advisors hit you up when you're in college, they take you out to lunch or dinner, and then they say, hey, I want to represent you and manage your money. Of course, being a 20-year-old kid, somebody takes you out to dinner, you feel like you owe them. So then you're like, of course, yeah, you can manage my money. And the only reason why you trust him is because he's in a suit. And that mindset is so broken. He does this to 20 players, doesn't have a real relationship, and now he's managing over $50 million. So we don't have true values when it comes to picking a financial advisor. So how do we know that we can trust him? How do we know that he has our ideation of what we want to do with our money and things like that. How does he know what plan we need? Just that whole system is broken. And then once you get to the league, your financial advisor says, "Hey, you can do this with their money. This is your budget for the month, and then I'll take the rest of your money." So, you get direct deposit. He takes out, let's say we get paid 15,000. You get 4,000 for your monthly bills, and then he takes the rest, 11, and he invests it and does whatever. You have no idea where your money's going. You can see it, but then they send you these big long documents about why your money's in this. And we don't understand that because we didn't go to school for finances. So it's no true teaching as we go through the process. It's like, hey, you're my financial advisor. Boom. I'm trusting you with all my money and my life decisions. And then we just keep going. And then they tell us the term I hate the most is you worry about the field and we worry about everything off the field. That term, it has to go. I'm personally done with it because nobody's going to care more about my money than me.
0: Well, like you guys, I've learned most of what I know about Web3 from Not Boring and from Packy. I think he's a genius. So, Packy, before we get into how these guys set up the players company as a DAO, just for listeners who may not be as fluent, give us the quick 411 on a decentralized autonomous organization and why it might work really well for what Amir and Sheldon have created with Richard.
3: Totally. So, the idea for the DAO or for a decentralized autonomous organization actually goes back to the first white paper that Vitalik Buterin wrote for Ethereum. And he talks about this idea of like these actually autonomous organizations where programmatically you can spend money based on rules and all this kind of stuff. What it's evolved to, though, is as Amir mentioned, groups of people who are controlling their social and economic incentives together in one place in the DAO structure. And so What that means for a DAO is it could be anything from new internet native version of an LLC all the way to a group chat with a bank account. But the key components are that one, it's a group of people who have a shared mission And they come up with a set of rules governed by tokens that you get rewarded based on how you participate. In this example, we're talking about the learn to earn model. So as you learn things, you get rewarded in the tokens of the group. And those tokens serve to kind of incentivize a certain behavior and governance. So the people who have the tokens in the group, either one token, one vote, or one wallet, one vote, or some other kind of governance model that the DAO might choose. Those people are actually the ones who get to decide how the organization runs. So Amir said that over time, he, Sheldon, and Richard will take a backseat in the decisions. I think this is a misunderstanding about DAOs. In the beginning, it takes this core group to set the foundation for what this is going to become and what the mission of the organization is and how the tokenomics will work. But then over time, as it matures and as people get a hang for it and as they maybe do some practice votes and some other things and these guys feel like it's time, then you tokenize and the token holders have the governance control over the organization so that it's not these three people. It really is the community governing itself over time. So I think it makes perfect sense here for a thing where you want to make sure that the organization doesn't turn into another thing where the people at the top are the ones profiting the most from it, but that the community is learning and evolving and growing and changing the mission and the needs of the community over time as their needs evolve.
0: So Amir, how did you guys arrive at this structure? Your mission is legit. You're really trying to do good and you're trying to spread knowledge about how people in situations that you guys have been in and faced with a lot of these issues about how to manage their own money and how they feel about the people who are trying to manage their own money. How did you arrive at this structure? Couldn't have just been the great online game by Packy.
4: Definitely a huge influence, but really it came down to one thing and that was community for us. On the opposite end of kind of the coin here, it was the lack of community or the Web2 world that really optimizes for profit. And that profit doesn't optimize for value for that community. And so in our case, it was like, how can we really genuinely and authentically begin to optimize for value and really pour back into the community? And so we started to dive into the systems like Shell alluded to, And you look at the traditional banking system, and there are a lot of inequalities baked into that system from lending to a disproportionate amount of people being charged fees and student loans, etc. There's a ton of things that exacerbate the wealth inequalities in our country. And so just from a straight experimental standpoint, it was like, What would a truly decentralized financial institution look like where the people actually dictate what's in their best interest or not, where it's not this centralized corporation that really is just trying to make as much money as they can from this Web3 vantage point It's like, how can we build this business as big as we can so we can create as much impact as we possibly can, where you can flow that back into the community, whether that be investing into their education, whether that be providing grants where you could even provide loan relief. There are a ton of cool things that you could do with that surplus of profit that now is just going into the pockets of corporations If we could just cycle that value back to the community and then the next piece from a community standpoint was really thinking through how do we begin to educate? We throw out the term financial literacy all of the time, but what does that truly mean? It looks a lot different from many different people. It could be just an informal conversation where Packy and I go to a coffee shop and we're just talking and you're just teaching me. And so we kind of brought this education back to our initial first step is this concept of mentorship. Everything that we have ever done, success, failure, We had to learn that information, that knowledge, that experience from somebody. A lot of times people think mentorship is we have to sit down every Monday, talk, but the friends we pick, the information we follow on social media, that is all forms of mentorship and mentorship, the foundation of it is community. And so from our standpoint, how can we really provide this community-driven form of education where it starts with onboarding, everybody's got to know why they exist here and what value they could bring to the actual community. but you have to onboard to your financial journey. And I think that's where we lack right now is like a true onboarding process to that journey to wealth. Right now, it's just people are trying to figure it out. They go to YouTube, it's a lot of noise out there, Instagram, how can we really provide this structured onboarding process that creates this forum where people can begin to transfer knowledge, information, and experience from one to the other, where Peggy's teaching us about Dow, Sheldon's teaching us about budgeted, Dan's teaching us about equity investing, and we're all just contributing. We're all just here to add value to each other. We can all learn something from each other and we could all build. We're, we're powerful together. So that's kind of the process of how we got to this Web3 world. It really boiled down to community. How can you create a community that was truly representative of the individual and not there to optimize for profit, but to optimize for value?
3: How do you think about building out the learn to earn model and like what goes into it and how you force it and all of that? And then where does it all lead 10 years from now? What does this look like?
4: So where we're at right now, we're calling there our proof-of-learn protocol, a playoff of proof-of-work and proof-of-stake, where they're the heart of the blockchain. Our proof-of-learn education is the heart of building wealth. And so it's really truly creating this incentive model that really steers somebody to invest into their personal financial literacy growth. And so basically how it works is we're building this all mobile. Everything centers around this traditional digital banking experience. Our end game loop is Learn earn, compete. And so from our standpoint, really the players company aspect here is what does it mean to be an athlete? What does it mean to almost be a lifelete? And it's somebody who prepares, perseveres, and performs to achieve some common goal. It's how can we really embed that mentality of an athlete into this project, into the actual journey that we're building out for the user? And then the influence from your article, Packy, was like, how do you gamify it? How do you create that same loop that you see in all of these different games that are in our life? And so basically, user sets up their digital banking account, and then there's this opportunity feed where we come in and we curate these experiences, whether it be a budgeting 101 course, whether it be real estate, venture capital, but we curate this curriculum based on that financial journey. And then users, as they opt into these different programs, they're both digital and in-person, they earn the token. That token, right now, it's done manually, but we will build all of the smart contract automation into it. So they earn that token. And then from there, the goal is to steer them to performance. So that's when the digital banking aspect comes into it. It's how can we really incentivize them to reach their financial goals? And then we do different competitions, savings competition, budgeting competition, where it's the community competing against each other. And then they are rewarded even more tokens for achieving their goals for performing. And then from there, they rank up. There's different rankings. We're doing them via NFT. They earn these different NFT badges, which unlocks varying levels to the actual game. So it starts with basically you get access to the baseline educational suite. Then from there, you rank up and we're doing these different in-person events called our Green Society events where we have these top business leaders come in and talk to us. They then unlock that. And then the third level, which is kind of more so for your high net worth individuals, they unlock the full deal flow suite where the goal there is like how do we tap into group economics how do we invest together
0: how do i get into this because this sounds so well thought out so amazing it seems so far ahead before web 3 became a buzzy word fintech was really buzzy so i'm curious sheldon when you're talking about this very well thought out idea that literally is only incentivizing people to help in a community sort of fashion and things that are really important to you and near and dear to your heart when you're talking about this hey i'm here and rich and i are doing this they're like no no i just want the hottest nft project that's coming out or what's the hottest SaaS stock or internet stock or something like that do you get pushback on that
5: actually no so it's actually well accepted in locker rooms everybody just kind of hopping on boards like when is it done when is it done now everybody trying to race to the finish line and we're like it's an easy process so really trying to make sure we do everything the right way before we offer a product because In the athlete world, you got one chance. And if you blow that one chance, you're done. And I feel like that's with everything. So first impression is really huge for us. So we're going to make sure we take our time and make sure everything is right and really up to par.
0: So you're saying you have one shot, one opportunity. This halftime show in a couple weeks, I mean, come on, guys. It's going to be Snoop, Eminem, Mary J. Blige. It's going to be off the hook. I mean, I'm tuning in for that. I don't care who's in it. Packy, you're too young to know 8 Mile, I too, literally
3: huh? used the 8 Mile theme song. Lose Yourself is the intro to my last post last week, so.
0: Yeah, but I'm a, I'm a reader, not a listener, bro. I'm
3: just saying, I do understand that. It makes sense why you use Web3. And I wonder if there's also this added benefit of, does it make it easier to attract people to come use it when there is that Web3 thing on top. So I think the tools themselves are valuable. And then that buzz is like not just a hype thing. It's actually useful, I think, to pull people in. Have you found that?
4: Yeah, most definitely. And there's this learning curve because when you tell somebody, I give kind of the little rundown of what Web3 is, walk them through the history of the web. And then when you talk about creating these aligned communities where we essentially can co-own the community success, it's like, what do you mean? We're so used to this world where you build Instagram, Instagram accumulates you know, billions of users, and that goes into Mark Zuckerberg's pockets. It's not the people who are early and really added value to that community. So it's this learning curve where people have to adapt to, that's legitimately possible. And then from there, it's like, man, shoot, let's get it. This is awesome. And really that power to the people vibe is really resonated. So yeah, most definitely, I think that angle in itself, just the community building, the alignment, we don't even have to get into the actual platform. It's like, power to the people. Let's do this together. And this is how we're going to do it. That's really how we get interest in buy-in.
3: To Dan's point before, this is not something that's even available beyond the locker rooms or wherever else. Is there a point in the future where this goes outside of the pro sports locker room and like just goes into high schools and middle schools? If I had a dollar for every time I've heard someone say, I can't believe that we're learning dinosaurs and not financial literacy in middle school. Is there a plan for that over time too? Because it seems like it'll be really valuable.
4: Most definitely. And so we've been kind of chewing on this for the last couple of months. It's like, obviously, the problems that we see with professional athletes aren't exclusive to professional athletes. It's just that transition period from, like Sheldon said, he had $200 in his bank account one day, then high six figures the next day. That transition period is so stark that we see the problems just exacerbated with professional athletes. But obviously, it's a nationwide financial literacy problem we don't teach this in schools. And so most definitely, like what we say is we're for athletes and life leads. And so basically we define what a life lead is, is you approach life like a sport, committing to prepare, persevere, and perform in this ultimate game. You are the driven, dedicated type. And so ultimately that's really where we want to take it to. To your last question of where we want to take this in 10 years, truly building this decentralized financial institution and really reimagining what banking is. Right now, banking is a very one-way relationship. You put your money in the bank, they lend it out, they give you very little back, very little tools that we actually have, resources that we have at our disposal. And it's like, shoot, if you were in a relationship with your significant other that you just did everything for and they literally never did anything back, you wouldn't stay in that relationship. And so why do we accept this one-way street with our bank? And so really it's creating this banking system that is truly two-way and that is really building for the future. As we look out and we see crypto adoption and what that looks like in various on off ramps with fiat to crypto, how can you build with the future in mind as really currency and really the economy is moving to a lot more digital direction? How can we build with that in mind? And so that's really how we envision taking this the next 10 years. And then also, what does a brick and mortar bank look like? How do you reimagine that? Where right now it's our generation, we go in there. We talked to a lot of college kids as we were building this out. People were going there to get quarters. No one's talking to tellers anymore. And so how could you create and reimagine what that brick and mortar location looks like? How can you create a collaborative space that really is there to do events, to provide community resources, to allow members to throw events, host events there, to allow other members to host financial literacy events, mentorship groups, whatever it may be, but really creating a truly collaborative community that's really just built on this common purpose of let's build wealth together. So that's kind of what we want to take this to eventually one day.
0: Well, listen, guys, I learned a whole heck of a lot in your blog post, Sheldon. You kind of mapped it out. I just did not know it was this well-developed. And I got to say, my other favorite defensive tackle in the NFL, Adonic and Sue of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, He is really championing the same idea about financial literacy is approaching it in a different manner. And I think you guys collectively have the right idea because you have this megaphone and you have this audience of people who really are looking for something better and not looking to, as you called it, do your thing on the field. We really appreciate you guys coming on OK Computer and talking about this. We hope you will come back. Sheldon, where can our listeners find out more about the players' company, Dow, and what are we expecting to see in the not-so-distant future? Any big headlines, any big news that we should know about?
5: Yeah, so we're actually working on that right now, meeting with some developers to get the website up and running. I know America kind of touched on that, but we do have an NFT dropping soon as well. Be on the lookout for that. Follow me on Twitter at Day underscore 91, and we can get you guys connected. That's
4: great. Amir, where can we find you? SolarBot3 on Twitter and Instagram. If you have any interest working with us, we're most definitely interested in working with like-minded individuals that are really committed to the cause, crypto natives, to anybody. Reach out. DMs are always open.
0: That's great. Hey, listen, and thanks to Packy. I said this before, I have learned so much about the work that he's doing and the sort of stories that he's trying to lift up and bring to the forefront. And I think here's a great example of something where everybody can understand the things that you guys are trying to put forward. But introducing the combination between, let's say, creator economy, that seems so 2020, doesn't it, Paki? And then the Web3 tools and doing it for good. I mean, it's just amazing. So we hope you guys will come back. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate Packy bringing it to our attention. So thanks, guys.
3: I mean, this is what it's all about. Thanks for
0: coming, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.